Welcome to the new Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live on WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert Broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our journey to Ireland, Scotland, and Britain began with an exceedingly evocative work by a non-English, Irish, or Scottish composer. In fact, two of the major works on the program are by people who weren't from those countries but came to visit and were so captivated by those countries that they wrote pieces inspired by them. This is Felix Mendelssohn's overture, the Hebrides Overture, inspired by a trip he took in 1829 to visit the coast of Scotland with a friend, and he was so overwhelmed by the magic and the mystery of the coastline, and particularly of this Fingal's Cave, this very mysterious cave they came upon, that when he got back home, he sat down and immediately started writing a couple of themes for an overture. Overture is really kind of a misnomer, and and what I find so fascinating about this piece and about all of Mendelssohn's concert overtures is that even though Mendelssohn was writing at the very beginning of what we call the Romantic period, he was in essence pioneering uh, an art form that would be made much more famous and popular by later composers like Franz Liszt and Richard Strauss, the tone poem. Because in essence, what this is is exactly that, about a 10-minute long, extremely evocative tone poem, the sound of the sea flowing by. And Mendelssohn even wrote that in the middle section, in his first version, in fact, he actually rewrote the piece a total of four times. The version we play is the final London version, which is the most commonly heard. But he wrote that uh, in his original version, he felt that the development section, the middle section of the piece, smelled too much of counterpoint and learned musicology and not nearly enough of of the, the grease of train wheels running on the track of the sounds of seagulls and of the beautiful sea. And so he tried to change that and actually put in what he felt were seagull sounds in the woodwinds. They don't sound too much to me like seagulls, but they do have a wonderful, uh, very uh, swooping sort of sensibility to them. So here now, Mendelssohn's Overture from 1829, uh, inspired by his journey to the coast of Scotland, the Hebrides Overture. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. In planning this journey to Ireland, Scotland, and Britain, I was very much aware of the fact that the capital region and our listening area have a great Irish-American heritage. And so I knew that I wanted a big Irish piece at the center of this concert, and so went about looking for just what might the right piece be. And it occurred to me that um, it would be fascinating to take an Irish folk instrument and pair it with the symphony orchestra, an, an instrument that perhaps doesn't normally play with orchestra, and create some kind of specifically and very special Irish work. So I called up an Irish composer whose name I had gotten and whose works I'd heard a little bit and who was very impressive. He unfortunately was not able to do it, but he mentioned a young composer just finishing his doctorate at Yale University in composition, a young Scottish-American fellow named Robinson McClellan, and said, you know, 
if you're thinking of a piece for pipes, because at this point I was beginning to think of a piece for for Irish pipes uh, and orchestra, he said the person you want is Robinson McClellan because he is himself a bit of a Highland piper and very close certainly to Scottish traditions but also to to Irish traditions. And so I called Robin McClellan up. He's a wonderful young fellow, I assume still in his 20s, just finishing up his doctorate in composition. And he sent me some of his music, which I was very impressed by. And I shared the idea with him, and he was so excited. He really spent months and months researching ancient Irish history and and created a piece uh, inspired, uh, really a narrative piece. I mean, he described it in the pre-concert talks as very much along the same lines of the Mendelssohn as being a very much a narrative tone poem. He was very captivated uh, by the discovery that 400 years ago, exactly this September in 1607, uh, one of the most important events in Irish history occurred, what was called the Flight of the Earls, an event that's much commemorated this year uh, all over Ireland, but not so well known uh, here abroad. It seems that the last two uh, Gaelic, true Irish earls uh, were driven from home by the English, the encroaching English, in the year 1607. Essentially what they did was they they snuck out of the country and, and boarded a boat with a number of their soldiers, a hundred or so soldiers, to head to Spain, an ally of the Irish, obviously also a Catholic country, uh, because Spain had promised to to supply them with a large force to come back and sort of reconquer the Irish territories that the English were encroaching on. Their boat was blown off course and they ended up in France, more Protestant than Catholic, and had to very secretively make their way ultimately to Rome and uh, had great support from the Pope and great assurances from Spain, but sadly were never able, uh, dare I say, Spain never really came through, and they were never able to return to uh, to Ireland and reconquer the country. And in essence, that was the beginning of the English domination of Ireland. And, and as Robin said, that's really a lot of the reason why they speak English instead of Irish, instead of ancient Gaelic in Ireland today. So uh, Robin decided, given this auspicious anniversary, to base his piece on the flight of the earls. And so he wrote essentially a 20-some-minute-long tone poem for Irish pipes and orchestra. Now, a word about the Irish pipes, something I had not known. I'd always assumed that bagpipes were bagpipes, but it turns out that in all sorts of different world cultures, there are different kinds of bagpipes, pipes that are played by an airbag that pumps air into the pipes. And while the Scottish Highland pipes, with which we're all very familiar, uh, are blown into, and that's what creates the wind, the air, that then gets pumped through the uh, through the instrument. Irish so-called illin pipes, these beautiful pipes, are played quite differently. There's no blowing on these pipes. There's actually a bellows that sits under the piper's right arm, and all the while that he's he or she is playing the instrument, they're pumping away at this bellows to fill the bag, to keep the bag constantly filled with air that then gets pushed through the instrument to make incredible sounds. Um, there are actually uh, seven different reeds or reed combinations inside the instrument, uh, three drones, low pitches that play the same pitch throughout when you turn it off. You can turn the drone on or off. In this case, it's a D drone, which is quite fortuitous because our Haydn symphony on the second half is also in D. And then there's this wonderful chanter, which is similar to the, the Scottish Highland Pipes, which is the little recorder-like uh, part of the instrument that one plays the melody on. And then there are a number of other pipes that create sort of sympathetic harmonies to the chanter. Uh, but meanwhile, the piper's pumping away, playing on his chanter, releasing the drone, uh, opening these other pipes. It's a very complicated endeavor, but an incredibly beautiful-sounding instrument. 
We're fortunate to have uh, one of the leading Irish pipers who at the moment makes his, his uh, home in New York City, Ivan Goff. He's an all-Ireland piping champion. And he worked very closely with Robin on creating the piece, on working through the piece. The piece begins sort of as a, as a travelogue. Um, it's a very abstract piece, but you'll hear even at the very beginning, just the cellos begin, and then they're followed by the violas, and they sing a very simple Gregorian chant. When the earls first arrived in in Rome, they were invited by the Pope to a Pentecostal service, and they sat with him, and they um, were in this incredible service at the Vatican. And so Robin sort of took this as his, his, his jumping-off point, as if they're sitting in this room hearing the chant as they would have in their own time, this authentic Gregorian chant. And then the, sort of the music uh, makes its way from that that sort of church idea into the, the whole idea of the Irish pipe and of, of the journey, the, the big storm that they encountered and such. So the first half of the piece kind of takes them sort of back through their narrative. And then it becomes a much more abstract piece. Uh, in the middle, I'd say about 10 or 12 minutes in, you may hear um, a very sort of simple sort of 3-4, one, 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 texture with just the bassoon being answered very delicately by the, the clarinet, a sort of rocking figure. And Robin calls this the dream of the salmon. It seems that uh, when they were staying in Brussels on their way to Rome, the earls happened to their servant happened to go out to the little, the little stream that went by and caught a salmon, which was unheard of in those parts. They never find salmon in that part of Brussels. And uh, they took this as a great omen because the salmon to them was a sign of ancient Ireland. Salmon is very clo- fish very closely associated with the Irish psyche. And they felt that the salmon was calling them home. And so you'll hear this wonderful little oboe solo, little flecking sort of oboe solo as it flits back and forth in sunlight, evoking the dream of the salmon. So now, here in its complete form, in its world premiere, the Concerto for Illin Pipes and Orchestra, The Flight of the Earls, composed for the Albany Symphony and Ivan Goff by Robinson McClellan. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. Our second half began with a series of very beautiful and poignant folk songs arranged by the great British composer Benjamin Britten. You know, Britten's life partner, Peter Pears, was a brilliant tenor, and so a great deal of Britten's music was written for Peter Pears. And Britten actually did, in, I think, six volumes of folk songs, which he arranged in his very unique and singular idiom. He he arranged the accompaniments, beautifully sparse and elegant accompaniments, to these traditional folk songs, most of them English, some of them Irish, and actually one book of French folk songs. And they all exist in piano voice versions, but Britain then went ahead and orchestrated about eight or nine of them. So I thought as part of our homage to the Isles, it would be lovely to do a set of these very delicate and beautiful orchestrations that Benjamin Britten did himself of some traditional English folk songs. Our soloist, actually, is an area resident, Amanda Boyd, uh, London-born, a charming young English lady, a radiant soprano, who lives currently here in the Capital Region. We were very proud to feature her in four songs. You'll notice that uh, some of them are very light and, and lovely. The second one starts out that way but turns exceedingly dark as folk songs sometimes do. The songs are The Sally Gardens, Little Sir William, Come You Not from Newcastle, and Wally Wally, or The Water is Wide. Here's soprano Amanda Boyd singing a set of Benjamin Britten arrangements of English folk songs accompanied by the Albany Symphony. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.
the Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony Concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was a set of traditional English folk songs arranged by Benjamin Britten and sung by the soprano Amanda Boyd, accompanied by the Albany Symphony, with me, David Allen Miller, conducting. To close our concert, I thought we would pick the greatest, although I suppose you can't really say that since all of these last symphonies of Joseph Haydn are, in essence, the greatest. The greatest of all Franz Haydn's 104-plus symphonies. As you may know, toward the end of his life, not really at the very end of his life, but as when he was already a, a rather elderly man by 18th century standards, Haydn made not one but two trips to London. It happened this way. Uh, Haydn spent most of his adult life, the, the vast majority of the years of his adult life, working for one princely family in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, the uh, Esterhazy family. And when the Prince Esterhazy, whom Haydn had served for many, many years, died in 1790, his son, the new Prince Esterhazy, was not nearly as emphatic, a classical music lover. I guess they didn't call it classical music back then, but wasn't nearly as as devoted a, a, a fine music connoisseur. And so to save money, he essentially disbanded the prince's uh, opera company, ballet company, and orchestra. He kept Haydn on retainer. Haydn had a, a life pension. Uh, but Haydn was suddenly a free man at the age of 59, 58, and then 59. Uh, and so Uh, Not surprisingly, within a matter of about a week, a very celebrated violinist impresario named Solomon, European-born but who was living in in London, uh, made his way to Vienna and knocked on Haydn's door and said, very famous music quote, he said, I am Solomon and I've come to fetch you to London. Well, Haydn, after just a little bit of thought, decided he would be delighted to go to London. He happened to know that he already had quite a following in England. And so on New Year's Day... 1791, Solomon and Haydn boarded a ship on the Channel in France and sailed across to England. And so began a five-year period that was among the absolute happiest in Haydn's life. He was 59 years old, but he was an absolute rock star. And all the princes and nobility wanted to take him to dinner and wine him and dine him. And he said in a letter that he, he had to actually make time to not go out because he could have an invitation three invitations a day for the entire duration of his his stay, which ended up being, with a little return in the middle to to Vienna, almost five years, his two visits. And uh, Solomon's deal with Haydn was that Haydn had to supply 12 symphonies, one opera, a number of choral works, and various other sundry works, uh, and so embarked this amazing final set of Haydn's so-called London symphonies. For some inexplicable reason, the only one that has the title, the London Symphony, is the final one, number 104 in D major, the one we're about to perform for you now. And I must say that uh, what became evident is that Haydn was particularly proud of this symphony. He was proud of all of them, but particularly of this one. And he kept writing in the various versions of it, my 12th for London, because he knew it was his final London symphony. And it was, like all his other London symphonies, a great sensation. And um, it shows Haydn at his most uh, whimsical and brilliant and uh, charming. I must say that uh, for, for those of us who play Haydn's music, and I think I speak for just about all musicians, he is just among the greatest of the great musicians, perhaps not as much Sturm und Drang, storm and stress, as one finds in more dramatic figures like his great young friend, Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, or his student, uh, Ludwig van Beethoven. But there's a certain sanity and a certain elegance and a certain wit and a wonderful wry humor always at work in Haydn's works. 
that frankly I think can give an unbelievable sense of, of comfort and solace in this crazy 21st century in which we live, which has so much madness in it, the, the sheer sanity and elegance and beauty and, and love of life that one finds in Haydn is just uh, an inspiration. And the reason I think about this issue of Haydn's sanity, dare you say, is that Haydn was so happy in London because in London, Haydn found his ideal audience. The audience that came to these Solomon concerts, and actually this symphony was written for a later concert after Solomon's series had closed down. The last three symphonies were written for a different series. But the audience that came to hear Haydn's works was every bit as aware of what he was doing musically as he was. And he had sort of the perfect connoisseur audience. The English audience was so attuned to him and so adored the way he created music that he had really found his absolute perfect audience. And so I'm always delighted to play the Haydn symphonies for our Albany symphony audience because I think that in 21st century terms, they are the equivalent of Haydn's London audience. So now here is Haydn's 104th symphony, the symphony in D major, so-called London. The orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.